We're going to be turning now to God's Word. We have a bulletin. Our sermon passage is printed in it. We're going to be reading from Mark 2. We're going to be talking about the topic of the Sabbath. This is in Mark 2, verses 23 through 28. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible or read and listen along as well. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Let's pray for our time together. Gracious Father, we pray that uh, your Spirit would be attending to us now, that he would teach us, instruct us, form us, that he would equip us and stir in us deeper and deeper longings for your work, for your grace, and for your reign. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark to reflect on the meaning and significance of the Sabbath. And uh, if you're new to church or uh, it's been a while since you've uh, been to church or new to the Bible, I'll give just a little bit of context that might be helpful for what the Sabbath actually is. And the story of Israel really centers around a group of people, the Israelites, who were slaves in the land of Egypt. And they were in slavery for centuries. And God loved them. They were a special people. And so he raised up a leader who would rescue them, take them out of slavery through the Red Sea, and then brought them to a special land. And he entered into a special relationship with them where he was going to be their God. They would be his people. And one of the first rules he gave them was kind of an odd one. He said, they've got to have new work habits. He said, they've got to work six days, but they have to rest on the seventh day. And we're used to hearing talk about the Sabbath and used to, you know, this sort of language. But to a people who had spent centuries in slavery, this would have been profound. And it would have been a gift. It would have been a grace to them. It would have been refreshing. And in fact, this special Sabbath day was so important to them, it actually became an identity marker. If you wanted to know a real Israelite, they were somebody who knew how to rest Rest was actually something that marked them out from all the other countries, all the other kingdoms in the world. That's really interesting. This notion of rest, of Sabbath, the seven-day work and rest week, has been something that has been a mark of how Christianity has imprinted itself on cultures. Western civilization, whether we know it or not, has been marked by the seven-day week. Six days of work, one day of rest. And it's interesting to note that when uh, there are movements in history that try to de-Christianize a culture, uh, try to uh, root out Christian influence in the community, one of the first things they do is they actually go after the Christian calendar. You might say, what's, what's up with the Christian calendar? Well, the Christian worldview is actually embedded in our calendars. And one of the classic examples of this is the French Revolution. The French Revolution was over a couple centuries ago. And this is where um, uh, French workers overthrew the church and the states, and uh, they introduced different kinds of uh, secular ideologies in its place. 
And one of the first things they did was attack the Christian calendar. And if you've ever read anything about the French Revolution, the things they did and replaced it with would sound very much like the French Revolution. And um, one of the things they did was they started introducing holidays to things like virtue, virtue and honor. Uh, they also uh, got rid of the leap year, and they decided to have a four-year calendar that revolved around the storming of the Bastille. And very, very importantly, they got rid of the seven-day week, and they replaced it with a 10-day week. They're in the middle of a revolution. There needed to be a lot more work. So rather than working six days and resting one day, you worked nine days, and you rested another day. It's a lot of work. Imagine your eight-hour shift going on for nine straight days, or rather than five days or six days, whatever you do. And um, not surprisingly, this was really bad, and people didn't like it. And what happened in that, at that uh, point in history was that the revolutionaries actually began to revolt against the revolutionary leaders. The revolution began to turn in on itself. It actually led to one of the most violent parts of the revolution. And some historians have said that it all started with their critique of the Christian calendar. There was something about the Christian calendar that was holding together the society. And when the French Revolution decided to replace it with the Republican calendar, things went south in a pretty big way. So the Sabbath is something that is deeply ingrained in our life, our experiences, even things like our calendars. And we're going to examine what this passage has to say about the Sabbath And there's two big ideas that we're going to hit on. Uh, The first one is this, is that the Sabbath forms us. The Sabbath, a single day in the week, uh, is a special day that has the ability itself to actually form our hearts and our lives. And there's a couple expressions of this that are illustrated in our passage. And one is that it forms us to be marked by mercy. If you lean into the Sabbath Mercy will be something that is increasingly formed in your heart, in your life. Let me read to you a part of our passage that describes this. One Sabbath, he who is Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they, the religious leaders, made their way, excuse me, his disciples, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful in the Sabbath? What is happening is that Jesus is with his disciples He's walking through the open fields, it's harvest season, and that uh, the the harvesters have already gone through, and the disciples are picking little grains and little heads of of the wheat or whatever it was, and eating it. And uh, this maybe sounds odd to us if we were to see somebody doing that, but it would have been a very standard practice at the time of the Bible. In fact, it was something that was uh, codified for Israel. They were supposed to be doing this. And if you were somebody who was in need and want you could actually uh, go into fields and eat out of the fields after they, uh, there had already been harvest. And it was one of the ways that you could provide for people who uh, weren't able to uh, even meet uh, basic material needs. And so the Pharisees knew this. They saw this. They were good students of the law. And, but there's also another rule. Don't work, on the, uh, don't work on the Sabbath. And as different Old Testament laws were being interpreted and developed and understood, uh, people would come to say that you can't actually harvest on a Sabbath as well. And so imagine here the religious leaders are. They're looking at Jesus and his followers, and they're saying, we got two ways we can interpret this whole thing. They're saying, one is we can say, wow, how amazing that God has created this system where everybody can be cared for. How amazing that uh, right now we have 
uh, a way that, that mercy has been systematized into our culture. Or they could say, these people are breaking the rules. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They have two ways they can kind of engage this, and of course they choose the latter. They say that Jesus and his disciples are lawbreakers. And what's interesting about this passage is it's really been used for, for centuries in the church as a proof text for why mercy is something that should be especially exemplified on the Sabbath. And that the Sabbath, out of all the seven days of the week, is actually a day of the week where we should have extra doses of mercy. Whatever mercy looks like in your life, we should have more of it on Sundays versus on other days. It doesn't mean it's not important on the other days or whatever else, but there is something about the Sabbath and this way this passage has been used throughout the church to justify the fact that our lives should be uh, involved in giving more mercy out on this particular day. In this story, uh, these, the disciples, what they're doing can be contrasted with the posture and the, the, the life of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Why do you think they were so quick to critique Jesus and his disciples? They had two options. They could have said this is exactly what people should be doing or say they're getting it wrong. They chose to be uh, critical. And the answer, I think, would be, uh, this is filling in the gaps, but I think it's because their lives were so little impacted by grace. Mercy was something that had such a little trivial dribble of an impact on their lives that they wanted to be critical all the time. They wanted to find ways that they could focus on other people's failures, and they were really artful with it. They were super, super skilled at finding ways to critique other people. And they knew the law, and they used the law in many ways to actually be really critical of other people. And that's what had happened when they had forgotten the way that grace had impacted their own lives. And so what the, the Sabbath does is it marks us with mercy, teaches us with mercy, but it not only teaches us that we need to be showing mercy, but also we need to be in need of mercy as well. Mercy is something that each of us needs. Each of us has a need for God's care and forgiveness. And when we're abstaining from work on the seventh day, what we're doing is we're positioning ourselves in a posture of neediness. I heard one of my seminary professors said it this way. He said, when you Sabbath, what you're telling the Lord is that uh, God can do more with 87% of your time than you can do with 100% of your time. That's a position of vulnerability. That's a position of need that we're going to refuse to um, work and try and reach our goals and impact the world by giving up an entire day of the week to actually not work. So it's a position of need and a position of dependence on the Lord. One of the purposes of the Sabbath is to form us in mercy, both to be people who give mercy and also people who need it as well. The other way that the Sabbath forms us is through a life pattern. It teaches us to live a life balance between work and rest. And to appreciate this, we need to look at some of the theological context that the story is, is taking place in. And I'll, I'll read to you um, just one of the ways that the Ten Commandments is restated in, in Deuteronomy. It says this, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servants may rest as well as you. God has set up this ancient pattern that's supposed to consist of working and resting. 
For six days, we are supposed to work tending to creation, building up the world. And the seventh day, we're supposed to abstain from that. And this is not an arbitrary decision that that God made. It's not something he decided to just uh, willy-nilly give us as a rule. But it's actually rooted in the way that he uh, himself engages the world as a creator. We're told that Sabbath, the Sabbath, is based on his own creational pattern. That he worked for six days creating the world, and that on the seventh day, he rested from his creation. And so as we Sabbath, we are actually in some ways kind of um, uh, beginning to figure out what it means to be kind of a sub-creator almost. People who have been brought into God's creation to continue his creative work. And Sabbath is, is something that connects us to the past and also connects us to what God is actively doing in the world. And this is in stark contrast to the, the tendencies of our culture. The pattern in our culture is not work rest, it's actually work numb. Work numb is the cultural pattern that we live in. And the differences between numbing and resting are subtle but important. When we're numbing, what we're doing is we're actually getting rid of negative feelings. We're getting rid of the stress, the anxieties, the frustration that we have throughout the week. But what it's not doing is recharging us. It's not filling us up for the week ahead. And what resting does is it's supposed to get rid of the anxiety, the frustrations, the stress that we all have. But it's also something that fills us up for the rest of the week. And God seems to think that uh, the rest can be such a formative thing for us that we don't need to have three days of resting and three days of working. He seems to say that the rest he wants us to experience and lean into is substantial enough that can actually equip us for something that's disproportionately more work in our lives. So he has this interesting idea that there's a kind of rest that's available to us uh, that is deeply impactful, that can actually recharge us enough to go uh, lean into many, many days of tending to God's world. And the the challenge with with numbing, which is really what our culture does, is that it it actually doesn't give us what we need. It doesn't give us the, the recharge to fill into the next six days of work. And so what happens is the anxiety, the frustration that we have keeps building. And then since the only way we know how to deal with our frustration is through our numbing, we need more numbing. And what's interesting about this, this turns into a cycle. Uh, frustration leads into numbing and et cetera, et cetera. And this leads to a pattern that looks like an addiction a lot of times. And it could be an actual addiction or it could be something that looks like an addiction. But that's how addictions work. They're cyclical and they're, they're things that... Um, we need to be in a certain kind of emotional equilibrium. And so we need something, whatever it is, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate, whether it's good or bad, to actually get rid of the emotional feelings and have, be in some sort of emotional equilibrium. And so some of these are things that would be, we would consider illicit, maybe alcohol and pills and things like this. Other things may be actually not bad things, Netflix. I like Netflix. But binging on Netflix can actually be a way of numbing, a way that we actually don't rest, but actually um, still try to deal with the anxieties that we have. It can be things like adrenaline sports. We live in the Northwest. I know a lot of people who their favorite thing to do is get to work and go up to Galbraith and do a lot of downhill mountain biking. Nothing wrong with that. It's actually even a good thing. But we can use adrenaline sports and thrill-seeking as a way of actually kind of coping and, and numbing. And so what the Sabbath does, interestingly, it's countercultural. It's something that pushes against the ways that our culture thinks about 
How do we get recharged? How do we get filled up? How do we have what it takes to lean into the, the challenges and anxieties of life? And uh, what it's offering us is really a, a pattern of working and resting, which looks different. Uh, and everybody's got their own way of different resting. There's, if you're uh, around Presbyterians a lot of time, you know, there's a lot of discussion in, in Presbyterian circles about what real rest looks like. And uh, some people, uh, they have, uh, maybe it means they're going to be cooking all their food on Saturday and there's going to be evening worship and hymns being sung all day. That's a great option if people want to do that. Uh, there are for other options. It means people want to go get on the water. They want to go, um, go picnic with their family. They want to do different things like that. And I'm not going to jump into telling you what's, what's the right or right, uh, wrong way to do that. But there's going to be a lot of different expressions of that. And that just means that in some ways, rest will be particular to your own family and your own situation that you're in. What we've said so far is, is that uh, the Sabbath forms us, and it forms us by uh, people, being people who are marked by mercy, uh, both people who need mercy and give mercy. It also forms us by uh, being people who have a new pattern for life, a, a work-rest pattern rather than a, a work-numb pattern. This passage also has another uh, uh, highlight on the Sabbath, and it's not just that the Sabbath forms us, but the Sabbath also leads us to Christ. And the point of the Sabbath is actually in many ways to do just that. It's to lead us to Christ. Our passage we read from Deuteronomy said that the Sabbath, to rest, is actually to the Lord. It's something we do. We direct ourselves to the Lord in in a kind of different way. And we're told that there is a special day devoted to the Lord. That, of course, doesn't mean the other six days are not given to the Lord, but there is a special, unique way that we are giving ourselves to the Lord in, um, in worship. And the Sabbath is supposed to be a day given to the Lord. And uh, what this tells us is, in some ways, is that uh, rest can be worshipful. And that rest itself is an act of worship. And I, I think that um, this is something a lot of people don't always appreciate. Uh, we live in a culture where uh, workaholism is something that's not critiqued. Uh, workaholism is, is simply means you're working without resting. It's not leaning into that work-rest pattern. And it's probably uh, helpful for us to know that rest itself can be a way of devoting ourselves to the Lord. We're actually giving ourselves to the Lord. We're honoring him by learning how to rest. But there's an add-on to this, and that is uh, that we honor the Lord by ceasing to work and add in a new activity on a Sunday. And that is surprising. Surprise is what you guys are all doing right now. It's being part of corporate worship. Uh, it's being giving ourselves to the Lord in service. And what Scripture says is that despite how ordinary church can sometimes feel, in a real and mystical way, we are uh, ascending into the heavenly Zion. And that we're actually coming before the Lord to meet with him, to do business with him. And that in this experience, he actually identifies us again with the gospel. That we're, we're being re-identified as gospel people. People who have been reconciled to the Lord, all of our sins have been forgiven, and that we're consecrated to the Lord, that our lives are now given to the Lord in service to him. And this pattern pairs with this uh, notion of rest and work. One day a week, uh, we deepen our identity with the Lord through the gospel, and the rest of the week, we are living out this gospel identity. And what we need is a pattern of deepening our identity and then living out of our identity which is what we have happening in the seven-day work week. 
uh, we worship with the Lord, we're re-identified with the gospel, and then the competing identities that we have uh, out in culture are replaced with a gospel identity, and we go out in the various callings that we have to actually live out our gospel identity. And what this means is, is in many ways that worship, regular worship, is really important for us. And you might wonder, what does regular worship mean? Let's be honest, it means every week. <laughs> you know, there are going to be exceptions. Uh, regular worship is not kind of every once in a while. It is a, a regular commitment to be in worship on a weekly basis with, with uh, kind of rare exceptions. And I think that um, uh, being part of church can be really hard, to be honest. And we go through seasons where church is easy, and we go through seasons where church is hard. And um, it's never like one or two Sundays that are hard. It's usually like a whole season <laughs> that's hard. And, you know, if I were just to be completely candid with all of us, this might be a hard season for some of you, right? This might be a hard season where Pastor Dave, uh, you know, was a really impactful person for many of you. You're here because of Pastor Dave. He had a, an impression on your life, and he's not here right now. And that's maybe hard to have somebody who spent potentially years or even decades serving you not here anymore. And there's another pastor coming, right, who's going to be super awesome. <laughs> and he's going, to be, he's going to love you guys, and you guys are going to love him. But we don't know who that is yet, right? And we don't know when that's going to happen. We think it's going to be soon, but we don't know all those details. And, you know, in between, you're stuck with people like me. <laughs> so, and this, I love this, but this ain't my day job either, you know? And... Um, and that's also hard, right? And if, if I could, you know, just kind of just be, you know, candid or encourage you in a couple ways with this, um, I think if you're somebody who says this is a hard season, I'd say it's okay for this to be a hard season, you know? You don't need to, you know, you need to put on a face. You don't need to say something that's not true. If this is hard for you, it's okay for it to be a hard season. And it doesn't have to be hard for you, but if it is, it's okay to say this is not easy right now. If I can encourage you also just with another uh, notion, it would be that um, showing up is going to be really impactful to your life. And it's probably easy on a Sunday to say, hey, I would really love to zoom in or do something else <laughs> other than, you know, that sometimes. John's preaching, all right, guys, come on. <laughs> you know? So it's, you know, and it's like that is, um, you know, I mean, the amazing thing is that we actually have the promise that the Holy Spirit is here present to us, ministering to us, and that the needs we have that we know or that we don't know, um, God is filling in those gaps for us. And, um, you know, that's going to, like, be really impactful later in the week in ways that we can't easily measure or calculate. But it's going to mean things like Scripture comes more readily to our minds, right? And we're going to find ourselves being more sensitive to the Lord in certain moments. We're going to want to respond in prayer rather than whatever our flesh wants us to do. And dealing with difficult people is going to be easier. And dealing with our own failures, we're going to handle with more grace and more integrity. And that all happens from just simply showing up and fighting to be engaged. And that profound little thing has the ability to literally transform the dead parts of your heart into something magical and amazing. <laughs> the future is coming into your hearts right now through those little moments. And so that's pretty incredible. And so, you know, my encouragement to you guys would just be, I think you're a wonderful community. And I have great hopes and expectations for you all. And um, keep, keep, keep sticking into it. Keep throwing your shoulder into it. And, um, you know, if you want to talk, you've got amazing leaders who are people that would be happy to talk with you. I'm a marginal listener, my wife will tell you, but I will try. <laughs> I, I'm happy to listen to you a little bit. And, um, 
Anyway, I just want to say this. I love you guys, and I want you to be encouraged with where you are with this season. And keep doing the good work that you're doing, which is just leaning into it and showing up. And that is such a profound thing, and that will have eternal impacts on your soul. So thank you for the opportunity also to even have a relationship with you guys. So I've enjoyed that over the last year or two. So I want to end just with a a final thought about what this passage uh, teaches us on the Sabbath and it, it teaches us, really, as, we, as we're pointed to Christ, uh, it really is a way that God's authority is demonstrated to us. And our passage ends with this comment from the Lord himself. He says, So the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. And the Son of Man was a title that was used often by Jesus. And if you track it, especially in the Gospel of Mark, it's fascinating. And a lot of people spill a lot of ink about what, what it actually means, and some people point back to the Old Testament, and um, I think what it really means is, is it's in, in the context of culture of Jesus, Second Temple Judaism, it was basically just uh, another way of greeting somebody, or ident- it was a title for somebody. It would mean something like sir or mister, and, um, and so what Jesus is, is doing when he's saying, I'm the son of man, he's usually actually using a title that doesn't have a lot of meaning in it. And what he is doing throughout the whole gospel stories is he's filling in this title with new meaning. And particularly what he's trying to do is he's trying to show his context, his the leaders, the, his the followers, all these people, that the Messiah, the one who was the object of their deepest hopes, their deepest desires, was wildly more exalted, wildly more transcendent and majestic than they could even imagine. And they were also trying to show that the Messiah, the one who was going to liberate um, Israel was actually much more humble and lowly than they expected as well. And so Jesus adopts this title and he does things and he says things and he'll throw it in. And we're supposed to be tracking with him saying, what does he mean? What is he trying to define the son of man as? And of course, this is the second time he uses it in the gospel of Mark. And so we're ready. We're eager. What does Jesus mean with the son of man? And what he's doing is he's connecting it to the Sabbath and he's playing on this, this parallel between um, his transcendence and his humility. And right now, he's clearly describing himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's saying, I am someone with power over the Sabbath. He's emphasizing his transcendence. And to appreciate what he's trying to do here, we need to actually go back and read the story that he's uh, citing in his conversation with the religious leaders. And Jesus is, you know, of course, he's in the middle of picking grain on the Sabbath and uh, if you were reading the story, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, Jesus is using some previous story as a kind of precedent, uh, as, a, as a way of, a, of offering a precedent for his moral behavior. He's trying to get approval for his behavior by offering some type of previous precedent. And, but when you go back and actually read this story, it's kind of confusing how he's trying to do this. <laughs> the story he is citing, this, all this business about the holy bread and the presence, is actually a story about David, uh, when he was just beginning to flee Saul. And um, uh, he is hungry, and he goes to the, the priest, and he says, I'm being sent from Saul himself, and uh, he told me to give, uh, for you to give me the bread. The reality, he's not doing that at all. He's actually lying. David is lying to the priest himself to get this bread. And then the priest says, okay, well, I'll give you permission to eat this bread, even though it's holy bread. You're not supposed to be eating. I'll let you eat it anyways. And then Saul, just a chapter later, hears about this. He's furious. He actually goes and kills the priest. 
And so David's uh, deceit actually led to the murder of somebody, <laughs> the, actually, the killing of somebody. And this is a story that Jesus interestingly cites to justify his behavior in picking grain. What is Jesus doing? The idea behind Jesus' behavior is just this. It's that David's eating of the bread was permissible because it was approved by the priest. He's not trying to use uh, the implications or the motives of David to justify his behavior. He's trying to point to the fact that the approval from the priest is what justified him eating the holy bread. And Jesus is saying something like this. He is saying that he has approval to to harvest on the Sabbath. But who was the one who approved him? What we have in our story is actually a confrontation between the law and the lawgiver. And that's because Jesus himself needs no approval because the law itself issues from him. Here we see an instance of Jesus' authority in actually establishing the law itself. While the Pharisees were partial in what laws they wanted to keep and follow, the, uh, Jesus himself is actually somebody who is creating a new law. The law itself is bending and molding to the, to the, uh, the will of the lawgiver. In the Old Testament and the Jewish traditions, uh, Jesus would have been, in many ways, out of alignment with the laws. And yet David himself, who needed permission to bypass the rules, Jesus is not like David. He needs no permission because he himself is the highest authority. The Son of Man has identified himself as a lawgiver, and his title now has a newer and deeper meaning to it. He is the one who stands, sets the standards that we follow. And while Jesus is demonstrating law issues from him, he is not in contradiction to the Sabbath or the practices of the Jewish people. Instead, he is more closely aligned with Yahweh, who decreed the Sabbath, and in whose honor the Sabbath was observed. The point gets to the deepest meaning of the Sabbath, that it is the grace of Christ meets the demands of the law. The Sabbath is a commandment given to the people of God. It's meant to be followed and obeyed. It's supposed to constrain us and direct our lives. And yet the command is as much a blessing. It offers us freedom from striving, freedom from the burdens and cares of work. And it's here in the Sabbath that we find grace and law meet by the law itself being a grace to us. The command of God leads to rest for our hearts and for our lives. Will the Lord give us this experience today and always? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for stories like this, which attest to your power, your might, your majesty. We pray that your spirit would make us more like your son. We pray that he would deepen our longing for your kingdom, for your word, and for service to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.